You know, in the coming year, we're going to be instituting a lot of changes to our education system. We're going to do Operations Simplified Grammar, because there is way too many rules in the English language. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Colombian news reporter Jake Thomas. Remember Brian Baird? He used to be known for his impersonations of George W. Bush. He also used to represent Southwest Washington in Congress as a Democrat. Nowadays, Baird isn't so happy with his party, and he's really not happy with the Republican Party either, especially the direction it's taken under President Donald Trump. So Baird has teamed up with Chris Vance, a former King County Councilor and Chair of the State Republican Party, to launch Washington Independence. It's a new political action committee that seeks to court disaffected and disenchanted voters by offering independent, centrist candidates for elected office in Washington. Columbia News reporter Katie Sword and I talked with Baird about centrism in the age of Trump, what's wrong with the Democratic Party, and why he won't do an impersonation of the current president. Later in the program, I'll talk with State Senator Ann Rivers, a Senate Republican, about the upcoming legislative session. But first, a conversation with Katie Sword about her upcoming story about diversity, or the lack thereof, in Vancouver City Hall. For nearly three months, Sword has been looking into why Vancouver City government is so overwhelmingly white and male. You can read all about what she found in her story that runs this Sunday in the Columbia. So for the last three months, you've been looking at uh, diversity, gender, and by ethnicity in the city of Vancouver. What made you want to look into this topic? For me, this all started uh, with a story I wrote in October about the assistant city attorney, Deborah Quinn. She filed a uh, whistleblower complaint um, and filed a, a lawsuit, actually, that's still pending for court against the city. And in that suit and whistleblower complaint, she alleged a lot of things. But one of the things was that there was a lack of diversity and further a lack of motivation in the city to fix that problem. Um, and so, you know, she made these claims that there was no university. So I thought, well, is it true? I mean, what, what do we have to work with here in the city of Vancouver? Is it all white? Have they, do they have protocols in place? Do they have any sort of programming? And so I spent about the last three months looking into that and found that it's not very diverse. They don't really have much programming. And it seems she's kind of right. And how did you go about reporting this story? So to begin, I had to get my hands on the demographic data from the city, which took a little longer than I had hoped for. But um, once I was able to get some of that, then I had to kind of make it useful, which took a little more time as well. And then I was able to get these numbers like that it was 91% white. Um, and from there, you know, I tried to get all the information about the different programmings that they're doing and trainings and... Um, any sort of future work that they might have planned, just kind of what they're doing to fix this problem or if they even think it's a problem. Is that how does that compare to the rest of Vancouver, the broader Vancouver community? Yeah, so and then when you compare it to Vancouver, Vancouver has only 73% of the population is white. And then you get into um, the different demographics. You have 12% Hispanic, 5% Asian, 5% multiracial, and about 3% of the community is black. Katie, let's hear some numbers about the demographics at City Hall. So the overall population, there's about 1,021 employees and 91% of those are white. Um, and then when you break it down by gender, we have only 29% female and 71% male. So how does that compare to other institutions uh, locally, such as the county or maybe other cities like Vancouver? Yeah, so when I was working on this story, I wanted to have that comparison for myself as well. So I looked at Clark County. Um, their workforce is a little bit bigger than Vancouver. They have almost 1,700 employees, but their um, gender demographics anyway are split a little bit more evenly. It's 48% female, 52% male, but their population is still 88% white. Um, and then I wanted to get some other cities to compare to. So I looked at Bellingham and Everett, which both of their workforces are about the same. They're about 1,100 employees, so pretty comparable to Vancouver. Um, and Bellingham, we have 61% male, 39% female, with 90% of those employees white. And in Everett, it's 26% female, 74% male, with 89% white. So in terms of 
the uh, ethnic makeup, Vancouver is kind of similar in that respect of that it's still all pretty white in the workforce. Um, and you see some of that in the, the gender makeup as well, that they're pretty similar, but it's interesting to compare to Clark County, you know, and that city is in Clark County and yet there's kind of this divide between what you see in the gender makeup. So does the city think this is a problem? Yes. Um, they, they do have plans for the future to try and work on this and they've stated that you know they have been working on it in the past but when you look at the numbers it's it's a little hard to believe that there has been a concerted effort um, in the last several years to really make diversity and um, hiring more females a priority so why should that be, be a priority why why is it significant to have a, a diverse workforce so that's a good question um, Really, it comes down to you want your organization to be representative of your community. So when you look at, just based on the numbers, comparing Vancouver City to its government, it is, is not representative. So that means that maybe you have someone from an ethnic background who comes into the city to, you know, I don't know, get something done with their sewer bill and there's no one there that looks like them. They may be less likely to come in and you know fix a problem or to work with you. They may not feel comfortable in your community. Maybe they won't move here because they don't feel comfortable or they, they hear that Vancouver doesn't really have any black people in its, you know, in its representation. Maybe I don't want to come here. And that, that can trickle down and have a lot of different effects. Maybe you have um, you know your partner gets a job at the city and they and your partner is not you know white and then they hear, well there's not really anywhere for me here and then you lose that employee at the city because their partner doesn't feel comfortable with coming to this community here. So it can really have a lot of impacts. It's not just that it's too white, you know, maybe that's not a big deal. Well, Katie Sword, a Columbian City Hall reporter, your report on diversity at City Hall and what Vancouver is doing about it will be in this Sunday's Columbian. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Next, let's hear from former Congressman Brian Baird, co-founder of the Washington Independence. So let's talk a little bit about Washington Independence. What, what is this project and how did it get started and what are you trying to accomplish with it? Washington Independence is a branch of the Centrist Project, which is a nationwide movement to try to uh, support and elect centrist independent candidates to Congress and to legislative bodies. The, the basic uh, idea is something most people can appreciate. People are very disappointed right now in both the Republican and the Democratic parties. Congress is held and legislators are often held in some of the lowest esteem that polling has ever shown. And yet we keep giving just a binary choice. You can either vote Republican or Democrat. More Americans than not, I should say, identify as independent rather than as Democrat or as Republican. So a lot of people are saying, I want a different choice. And Washington Independence is designed to try to give them that choice. Will you be then uh, trying to recruit candidates, or, or how will your involvement there work? Precisely. Well, I, I neglected to mention, you know, this was started initially by Chris Vance, uh, former chair of the Washington State Republican Party, who had attended a meeting of the Centrist Project uh, last year and was inspired by it. Chris approached me and a number of other people, and uh, I agreed to participate. I still consider myself a Democrat, but I believe both sides need to have alternatives and need to be particularly given opportunities to look more at centrist candidates. So our goal is to recruit candidates to run, to give them support in terms of advice, consulting, uh, hopefully financial support as well, recruit volunteers to work on campaigns, and uh, try to provide the support that's necessary for people who don't want to uh, run within either existing party structure. I'm glad you mentioned that you still consider yourself a Democrat, because I want to expand on that just a little bit. You know, you're... Um, supporting those who want, you know, the centrist view, saying that a lot of people are no longer fit into either category, but you still identify as a Democrat. You know, Chris Vance has said he's no longer a Republican. Can you elaborate a little bit on why you still put that D behind your name? Well, sure. Uh, you know, there. Are, if you were to compare the two parties right now, I just, I'm deeply disturbed about the direction the Republican Party is headed. That's why Chris has, has renounced his prior party. But I'm at the same time not particularly pleased with some of the uh, initiatives on the Democratic side. I would have uh, had, if I were running right now, which I'm glad I'm not, but if I were, I would not have supported Nancy Pelosi for a leader in the Speaker of the House, for example. I think both parties have become too beholding to special interests. I think uh, there's too much insistence on party loyalty 
rather than uh, responsible legislating. Uh, at the same time, you know, one of the things, if you look at uh, some of the tenets of the centrist project, their social tolerance, fiscal responsibility, environmental responsibility, facts-based uh, decision-making, etc. I think those are all very, very good virtues, but that doesn't mean one should be lockstep uh, in line with one party or another. And so for me, there are many values of the Democratic Party that I still adhere to and endorse, but even that said, I think there are often uh, the system itself and the good of the country uh, require that there be some choices. You wouldn't go into a, <laughs> a, a Starbucks or to a, a Baskin and Robbins and if Baskin and Robbins would say, "Well, we have two flavors: chocolate and vanilla." Starbucks says we have we have with or without cream coffee. That's what we got. You know, a, a democratic republic depends on people having votes that matter and candidates that they can support. And I think the two-party system isn't providing that right now. So even though I still uh, support many values and many candidates who are Democratic, uh, and I have many friends on the Republican side, I think both parties would benefit, and most importantly, the country would benefit, and the voters themselves would like to have alternatives. How are recruitment efforts going for 2018? Will there be any independent candidates on the ballot in Washington State? We think so. Uh, we've been, uh, in fact, we're meeting, the, the, the board of Washington Independence is meeting in early January. We've interviewed a number of candidates. There are some really very well-qualified and very interested and highly motivated people stepping forward. You know, one of the things about this that's so important is, is if somebody just says, I'm an independent, that doesn't tell you very much about them. Uh, so what we're trying to do is really get to know folks and interview them, talk to them, have a, a group of people work with them and understand them and get to know them so that if, if you see the Washington independence endorsement behind a candidate, you can have some confidence that this is a person who is of, sub, of substance, who, who believes in the principles of the centrist project that, as I mentioned before, those principles include good governance so that we, we don't have special interests ruling the country and that we don't have a legislative process that, that blocks rather than encourages debate. It includes um, environmental responsibility, uh, so people recognize the importance of and reality of climate change. And then how we solve that, it, it, there's room for disagreement about that. But uh, um, we will put forward candidates who are responsible, who are well-prepared, who are well-qualified, and committed to the good of the country over the good of special interests. So I'm curious, uh, the race for the 3rd Congressional District is already heating up. We already have a number of Democratic candidates who have announced that they will run against Jamie Hara Butler. It's also your former uh, district. Do you think that the independents will put forth a candidate for that position as well? Well, I don't think that's likely. Uh, one of the areas we're really wanting to look at is if we, if we find districts where you've got extreme candidates on one side or another without viable alternatives, uh, then I think independents... Uh, have particularly strong sway. There are some districts on both the Democratic side and the Republican side where one candidate or one party has been winning with, you know, 60% of the vote, not necessarily because people are thrilled with that candidate, but because there is no alternative from the other party. I think in the 3rd Congressional District, we've got some uh, a particularly very good candidate on the Democratic side, and uh, I'll be uh, supporting Carolyn Long, who I think is just an outstanding incredibly well-qualified candidate, uh, and uh, will do a great job in Congress. Well, why uh, will you be throwing your support behind Carolyn Long? I've known Carolyn Long for uh, almost two decades now. She's a very distinguished professor at uh, Washington State University. I've uh, been there, I think, 21 years, if I remember right. Has led efforts to bring civility and politics uh, and governance across our state, which I think we desperately need. She's extremely bright. She comes from a classic working class background. She understands the problems of working families. She's committed to making sure Americans have and Washingtonians have affordable quality health insurance. She's obviously keenly interested on education and public safety. And most importantly, I think she really understands where people are coming from and what, what people need. And she will put the needs of Washington State uh, and the third district uh, over party politics and over special interests. How would you assess how Congresswoman uh, Jamie Herr Butler is representing the district? Is she doing a good job, or is she the things she could be doing better? Or well, let's let's talk about a few things. First of all, I you know as, as you know when I was in uh, maybe you know 
when I was in office, we had over 300 and some town halls. I think a representative has a responsibility to be available to constituents to answer their questions, to hear their concerns, to do that repeatedly and reliably and respectfully. And that, that's the first point. I don't think Jamie's met that standard. Secondly, I am deeply concerned about the direction that the, the, the country and the Republican Party in particularly have, have gone uh, under President Trump. Uh, we really have enormous challenges in, in terms of foreign policy. We just uh, they just passed a, a one a, a tax bill that will increase the deficit or the debt over time by at least 1.5 trillion dollars. They tried to dismantle uh, the health care system and are going to throw possibly 10 million plus people or more off health insurance. There, there are a number of I think misguided policies. We haven't seen true leadership uh, from the incumbent, and there's been plenty of time to demonstrate that leadership and, and independence, and I don't think we've seen that. So I'm curious, you know, you, you run as a Democrat, you are a Democrat, um, but, you know, when you were in office, you supported a border wall similar to what Donald Trump has proposed. Do you think there's room for that sort of centrism in this age of Trump? Well, I don't think that's an accurate statement. I didn't support anything like what Donald Trump has proposed. Uh, and uh, I do support responsible immigration reform, mm-hmm. but the kind of hatred and bigotry and, and pettiness and, and racism, frankly, that have come from Donald Trump are abhorrent. And so, you know, his statements about all Mexicans, you know, being murderers and rapists and things like that, you know, things like that are just not acceptable. I think we need responsible immigration policy, but uh, his approach has just been flat wrong, I believe. So. There is there is room for centrism. You know, one of the things I insisted upon when I was in Congress was that we have time to read legislation. That should not be a radical idea. But if you look at how the Republicans handled the health care bill, if you look at how they handled the most recent tax bill, there were virtually no opportunities, certainly on the House side, for the Democrats. To, there were no hearings uh, on the tax bill, the final bill that was passed. There were virtually no opportunities to offer amendments. It was jammed through. The Republicans said they, they said themselves they don't know if they haven't read it. They'll, they'll sort it out after they pass it. Well, that's not the way to legislate. And, and if either party does it, it's wrong. But you have to have the integrity to stand up to your leadership and say, look, if you don't respect the voters enough and your own members of Congress enough to even let us read legislation, evaluate it, understand it, have it scored by the Congressional Budget Office, then you're not going to get my vote. Okay. Um, so I'm curious what you think about this indivisible group. It, it formed shortly after uh, Donald Trump was elected. It uh, was formed by, I understand, former congressional staffers who put out a guide um, right. as to how to lobby Congress effectively. I'm curious what you think about this group. Have they had any effect and will they have any influence in 2018? Well, there are a lot of, of independent organizations and alternative groups that have sprung up. Uh, in, uh, Indivisible is one example. Other examples are outside of Congress, a thing called Issue One, which I'm uh, affiliated with, mostly from former members of Congress, a, a thing called the Reformers Caucus, which is trying to engage in campaign finance reform and an end to gerrymandering and responsible governance uh, promotion. Uh, there are a number of those. And we actually think they're going to co- coalesce in some way over time, that people are all that this is showing, I think, is the, the, the hunger for a responsible, civil, uh, fact-based, uh, reason-based uh, approach that puts country over party and uh, principle over special interests and the people uh, above all. So I think, you know, Indivisibles made some very positive steps, I believe, and I think a number of these other groups are, and I think that all together is signaling that the people are not satisfied with the leadership, if you can even call it that, of President Trump, uh, and frankly with the the sort of sycophantic enablers uh, that have called themselves the Congress right now. Well, would you say that all this money that's in politics right now as well is making that task more difficult? Oh, absolutely. You know, the number one challenge, I think, uh, facing our political system right now is money. Uh, when When campaigns are costing many, many, many millions of dollars, and when extraordinarily wealthy people can, with a stroke of a pen in less than 10 seconds, obliterate, in terms of total amounts of money, small dollar contributions, 
uh, from many hundreds of thousands of Americans even, that there's something desperately wrong. And when they then uh, tie those contributions directly or implicitly to some expectation of a policy return on their investment, you've got enormous problems. Members of Congress are spending too much time raising money. Uh, the pressure from special interest groups is too powerful and too influential. And uh, the voice of the American people is being drowned out. And frankly, sadly, the good of the country is being sacrificed too often to people currying favor with uh, potentially huge donors and, and dark money that goes into super PACs. So there are a number of things we can do to reform that. We can insist on absolute transparency so you no longer have uh, money coming from dark PACs that, with imaginary names that you have no idea whose money it is. We can re-empower uh, small donor contributions, and there are a number of ways we can address this. But sadly, for example, the Republican Party, which once championed transparency, has repeatedly now voted against transparency for campaign finance, and that's part of the problem. Um, so as far as uh, you, you mentioned earlier, the uh, special interests on both sides, on the Democratic and Republican sides, and, and, right. you, and you wouldn't support Nancy Pelosi. What are some of the special interests on the Democratic side that you're concerned about? Well, I mean, you know, uh, I'll give you some examples that, that in some ways I understand and respect their positions. But the problem is, if we can't have a reasonable discussion uh, without fear of campaign finances coming into play, we've got a problem. Let me give you some examples. There, I have a strong respect for, for the labor movement in many, many ways, but it has also happened occasionally that people have, certain organizations within organized labor have said, well, if you vote for even a single free trade agreement, we will never support you again, or we will significantly withdraw our campaign support, both in terms of volunteers and in terms of campaign contributions. Well, there are many aspects of trade that are complicated, that are important to our region, particularly. We're the single most trade-dependent state in the entire country. And yet sometimes some organizations will say no, absolutely no on any trade organization or any trade agreement whatsoever. I think that's just bad policy. And if we just sort of curry favor with that, I, I, instead of having a reasonable discussion, I think we've made a mistake. Trial lawyers have been very adamant supporters of the Democratic Party, and I think there are needs for uh, uh, some tort reform. I think you can still protect the rights of, of uh, uh, people who have been wronged by uh, uh, mistakes on the part of corporations or others, but I don't think that uh, the current tort system, particularly in the area of medicine, has necessarily served the needs of the public, uh, doctors, or patients. So I think particularly in the area of, of medical malpractice, we ought to explore responsible ways. And I introduced a bill to do that when I was in office, and people got really mad at me. How dare you uh, not just do as you're told and instead try to find a reasonable, common-sense, centrist solution? Now, on the other side, you know, you've got special interests, individuals like Sheldon Adelson, uh, uh, the Koch brothers, uh, the Mercer family writing enormous personal checks to dark money packs oftentimes. And then you've got um, the special interests, whether it's the NRA or, or the, the long list of special interests on the, on the right wing side. That's distorting the political process and the American people are sick of it, frankly. Um, so I'm curious, if you wouldn't support Nancy Pelosi for House Speaker, who would you support if you were still in Congress? Oh, gosh, you know, first of all, I would think the Congress would benefit pro profoundly from an independent, nonpartisan Speaker of the House. The Constitution does not require that the Speaker of the House come from uh, a political party. In fact, the Constitution never says the word political party in it. So part of the centrist movement and Washington independence is actually, some people think this is a crazy idea, but we're actually getting back to the roots of the Constitutional Democratic Republic. George Washington, in his farewell address, cautioned against the potential destructive nature of political parties and urged that people, or uh, cautioned that people would begin to put loyalty to party over loyalty to country. This was in his very moving and powerful uh, uh, farewell address. And the Constitution never says political party. In the terms of speaker, it simply says the House shall choose its own speaker. I think it's worth considering as. Uh, 
some other places do, an independent speaker whose job is to make sure the process is fair, that there is adequate time to read, study, and debate legislation, that the schedule in the House keeps track of the legislative agenda so that you actually have uh, appropriation bills coming to the floor on time, you actually have budget bills coming to the floor on time, you don't have this nonsense of continual, continuing, continuous, continuing resolutions that say uh, the government will shut down unless we act against an independent speaker who's not out raising money, who's not out trying to make sure one party has an advantage over the other party, who's not allowing uh, uh, investigative committees to be political witch hunts, etc. So I think an independent speaker, barring that, on the Democratic side, I can think of 20 people who would do a great job. Ron Kind, our own Danny Heck uh, uh, from Washington State would be an outstanding Speaker of the House, I believe, for example. So um, I, I, I can think of a number of people who could. When will you have be announcing candidates for Washington State or elsewhere? We should be announcing some early early in the new year. Uh, I would think by the end of January. Depends on we're going to do these interviews early in the, in the month. We're already I've been in a number of conversations on the phone, but we just want to uh, continue and have the entire board act on this. So I would think certainly by filing time, our hope would be at, at the start to have as many as a half dozen to a dozen candidates in various legislative districts around the, the state. Now, this is, you know, one thing to be aware of. This is a it's not an easy thing to start a new political movement. And, and there are a lot of forces lined up against it. Some of the very special interests that we alluded to before don't really want to have candidates who put uh, people over special interests. Uh, and so there are a lot of forces that will not uh, uh, be supportive, at the, to say the least. And, and yet, I think if you ask the average Washingtonian, would you support a candidate who puts people over party, principle and country over special interests, who believes we need to reform the, the way the government works in the sense of making sure we balance our budgets, that we are fiscally responsible, that we don't let campaign finances be run by the super wealthy, uh, that we have reasonable time to study legislation, etc., that we solve our environmental problems rather than deny them, that we use real facts to uh, make our, our decisions uh, uh, in Congress, um, and that we don't demonize people and we just are, and we end this sort of social to intolerance and divisiveness based on race or gender or country of origin. Would you support candidates who hold those values? I think most Washingtonians would say absolutely I'd support them. So, so is this a new political party? Will it turn into a political party? It may turn into a political party. It's not that at the, at the current moment. Uh, you know, the centrist project is a nationwide effort. We're not pushing, uh, certainly in the current uh, effort, we're not pushing for presidential candidates because we believe the effort to, to qualify for the ballot in 50 states, et cetera, is just overwhelming right now. But there are, for example, as, as we may, many people may know, the governor of Alaska is an independent centrist right now. Uh, there are independent centrist candidates having real impact in the legislature in Colorado. There are candidates stepping forward across the country. We've tended to focus more on states like Washington, which have uh, open primaries, believing that, that there's more opportunity there, uh, or virtually open primaries, I should say, that more opportunity there. And we'll tend to focus on districts where people are feeling disenfranchised because one party or the other has sort of had an extremist incumbent who uh, is not uh, uh, really reflective of centrist values. And um, it may become a party eventually. Right now, it'll be really people will file and presumably indicate on their ballot, prefers Washington independence. Uh, as we do in our state, we prefer you indicate you know what you prefer. They'll put, we prefer Washington independence, and they'll be able to in, in, include that they've been endorsed by the organization. And uh, then they'll get volunteers and hopefully some financial support, et cetera. Uh, so how, you know, you mentioned that this is definitely a challenge to do this shift from this two-party system, try and become more centrist. So how are you really getting people excited about centrism? Well, well here's an interesting thing. It's a great question. Uh, let's, start with, <laughs> let's start with how people feel about the current system. <laughs> it would be pretty hard to say that the majority of the American people think that the two parties and the divisiveness that we've seen in the legislature and in the Congress are serving the people right now. If you were to say, how enthusiastic are you about how the Republicans and Democrats are working together for the good of the American people and the future of this country, 
I don't think you'd score very highly on, on most polls. So let's start with that. So how do we create that enthusiasm? We put forward quality candidates. We stand for things that people care about. We put people over party and principle over special interests. And, uh, and then we show that it, it can be done. You know, if, if in the Congress, uh, when, take, for example, the Senate. If you just had four truly independent senators right now, truly independent, they could have an enormously powerful impact on the United States Senate. They could say, for example, no, you can't bring a tax bill up until the public has had time to study it, until we've had real discussion through the committee process and had time to debate it. No, you can't jam through a health care reform bill without knowing what CBO's Congressional Budget Office says it will do and without seriously considering the implications. And it's probably not a good idea to do that when every major healthcare organization in the country, from the American Medical Association to hospital association to countless others, think what you're doing is wrong. A very small group of people in tight margin uh, uh, legislative bodies, whether that includes federal level or the state level, can actually make things work much differently. And people realize, hmm, I hadn't thought of it that way. It is possible for a small group of people. We're not talking extremists here. This is a key. We're not saying the far right or the far left are saying you have to do it our way or we're going to take our balls and go home uh, like kids on a playground or something. There, We're saying centrist candidates who say, let's make sure the process is fair. Let's make sure we know what we're voting on. Let's make sure we have... Uh, the information we need to make a decision. Let's make sure the public has a chance to study things themselves and they know how the legislation, uh, legislation will affect them. So what we're saying is let's get excited about a new way of doing business in, in Olympia and in Washington, D.C. Let's get excited about people who are not just going to march in lockstep with one side or the other. Let's get excited about people who make fact-based decisions, who think substance should trump policy, or, or Trump uh, politics, rather, and policy should be based on on real information. That's that's exciting to me. <laughs> I hope it is to you. So to end on a little bit of a lighter note, I found that you're kind of famous for your George W. Bush impression. I'm curious, <coughs> have you been working on your Donald Trump impersonation? Oh my gosh! You know, the, the George Bush was was fun. I I actually won a comedy competition when I was in D.C. I was named the funniest celebrity in Washington, D.C., but that's like the best mountain climber in Nebraska in some ways. You know, it's not a high bar, but one of the really fun things I did was I got to the day after the second Bush inauguration, I, I did a stand-up routine along with several others at the Warner Theater, which is, you know, a big theater, a uh, fancy theater, huge crowd, almost all uh, uh people in the room were there for the Bush inauguration. And I was very honored because people said, you know, that was one of the funniest routines I've ever heard. I love President Bush. I respect him. And you handle it. You had the humor there, but you managed to be respectful. And uh, um, and I actually, you know, though I disagreed with many of his policies, and I thought there was plenty of room for some stand-up routines with President Bush, uh, I think he's a decent man. And um, I don't think that about Donald Trump. It would be, frankly, a little hard for me to impersonate Donald Trump because I don't respect the man in any way. I think he's the worst president in the history of the country. I think he bamboozled a lot of really decent people. I don't think the Democrats ran a very good race to start with. I don't think uh, uh, um, we gave the public the best alternative there. But that said, I think a lot of people got bamboozled by this man. I think he's a swindler. I think he's a, a bigot. And I think he's terribly destructive to the country. And it'd be very hard for me to do comedy about him with the same level of sort of, I don't know how to say it, the sort of sensitivity uh, that I have for when I tried to do the, the, the George Bush impersonations, because I, I just have no respect whatsoever for Donald Trump. I, I respect many of the people who voted for him. I have friends who voted for him. But I think many are saying, you know, this man is not uh, really fit to be the president of the United States of America, and uh, we need some change. So he'd be harder to do, actually, in a, in a respectful way. Oh, yes. I will give you one, one big oh, yeah. stick of the, Donald, or the uh, George Bush impersonation, uh, and it was, it was sort of how I ended it. And it was, uh, you know, in this uh, coming year, we're going to be instituting a lot of changes to our education system. 
we're going to do operations simplified grammar because there is way too many rules in the English language. We're going to do operations simplified spelling. For example, nuclear is going to have two U's the way it's pronounced, not just one. But most importantly, we're also going to highlight my interest in, in, in space exploration with renewable energy. We're going to institute Operation Solar Landing. We're going to put men on the sun so they can harvest solar energy. Now, I know some of you liberals, you're saying, you can't do that, Mr. President. The sun is too hot. They'll die. But what you don't know is we're planning to go at night. It's a lot cooler then. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> My pleasure. So, uh, Senator Ann Rivers, we, you have a legislative session coming up. We do have a legislative session coming up, and hopefully it will be shorter than the last legislative session, which was the longest in the history of the state. So do you think it will end on time? I year? do think it will end on time. There's significant will. Keep in mind that our interim was very, very short because of the period of time that we actually spent in the legislature last year, and uh, we, we did some very, very heavy lifting. And so I think that there's recognition now uh, that we turned a lot of dials. We don't need to turn so many. We need to see how what we did works and uh, and do maybe some minor tweaks, get, of course, the supplemental budget approved, uh, and uh, and then get out of town. So speaking of the supplemental budget, uh, so you were one of the, the negotiators with the, uh, they got the school funding package uh, passed earlier. To, uh, right. This, I guess it was last year. Uh, what the, the governor has a supplemental budget that will uh, that they'll raid the rainy day funds and will use that money to um, to sort of speed up the timeline for school funding. What do you think about the governor's supplemental budget? Well, I think that the governor was measured in his supplemental budget. I don't think raiding the rainy day fund is the appropriate use of those dollars. Uh, we have a situation where we've put in now $11.2 billion over the past five years into education. And because the reason, the reason that the Supreme Court wanted us to move that funding up is so that it could be good to go for October. But the reality, or I'm sorry, September, by the start of a new school year. But the reality is that our problem is with the calendars and way, the way that the calendars align. So rating the rainy day fund for something that's not really an emergency seems like uh, a questionable activity to me. So what, what should the state do? How should the state proceed with this time frame for school funding? I think that we stay the course. We made hard decisions. We came up with a plan that works, that represents equity for all of the people of Washington state, and uh, that raises Washington, actually, from, um, from whatever we were. So I think we're number four or five now mm. in terms of education funding, our per-pupil education funding. So... Uh, I think that we've done good things. Like I said before, we've turned a lot of dials. I think we need to now let it work instead of tweaking when we are not sure, you know what I mean, what needs to be tweaked or not. But how do you, but how do you address the, the Supreme Court said at the time frame that the, 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 the legislature hadn't funded education adequately? Well, it had funded it, but just didn't do it within a certain time frame by the self-imposed deadline. Well, what do you do with that? I think that it's an artificial construct that uh, we, I think that the Supreme Court has forgotten who they are. I think that they have forgotten that they do not have the power of the purse. And, uh, and with all due respect, I believe that they've set us up for a constitutional crisis by, by demanding certain policy and, and, um, you know, sort of holding the sort of Damocles over our heads. So I just, think that we have done yeoman's work. I'm proud of the work that we've come up with. And uh, I am in no rush to support anything that raids the rainy day fund. So what are the consequences of that? You said you mentioned a constitutional crisis. What What is the scenario for well, that? Well, I think any time that the Supreme Court tells the legislature where it needs to be spending the taxpayer dollar, then you actually have the the Supreme Court acting like the legislature. Mm -hmm. the, the purse is the specific responsibility of the legislature. 
and the Supreme Court saying, nope, you got to keep spending more, you got to keep spending more. What's the point of having a legislature if, I mean, then the Supreme Court could just contact the treasurer and say, yeah, we decided this isn't enough. We're, you know, spend the money here, spend the money there, do this, do that, reprioritize. I, I don't think that that represents what our Constitution intended. Uh, and so uh, there were some people who said, I don't want to do anything on education because uh, I don't think it was right of the Supreme Court to extend its will that way. But when you look at the educational system across the state, you could see massive inequity based solely on a child zip code. So we shouldn't say, oh, if you have the sad reality of of living in purple Washington, then uh, then your education is going to be, your opportunities are going to be significantly less than if you live in green Washington. Mm-hmm. And so I think that uh, what we did was the right thing to do because for the first time we created equity for students across our state. That to me is noble and worthwhile. I do not believe it is our responsibility to make the Supreme Court happy. Uh, and to um, to bend over backwards to do that. The money that they're charging us in fines is going into education anyway. So um, I'm just in no rush to to reinforce what I perceive is is um, inappropriate behavior on behalf, of, not only inappropriate but unconstitutionally sound hmm. behavior as practiced by the Supreme Court. So do, does Washington need a supplemental budget? Well, we always need a supplemental budget. And the reason why is because sometimes caseloads can differ. Sometimes we have windfalls of dollars that we right. weren't, and we have to put, the budget is the mechanism by which we put it either the extraordinary revenue into the rainy day fund, or it's the budget document that moves all the money so around So it should just be maintenance. State. Yeah, I this think. This time around, it doesn't need to do anything with tinkering with education. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think that we've done some amazing things. I spoke with one stakeholder last night who was asking me about uh, more dollars for special ed. But when we talked about what we actually did with special ed, then they said, oh, I didn't realize the bill did that. So we'll go back and look and see if that's a a tweak we need to make. But at this point, I'm not convinced that it is. So we'll have a look at all those things. But I don't see a need to do major uh, policy shifts in terms of of uh, budgeting in the upcoming session. So speaking of budgets, is the capital budget a done deal? Well, well, the one we had last year is a done deal. Um, but it didn't pass. It, but it didn't pass because we're holding out for a hearse that works for the entire state, mm-hmm. not just a hearse that works for um, for the watery part of the state. Uh, and so what could happen is we could come back and vote right away on the school portion of the capital, which we could do with cash, mm-hmm. right? The cash portion of the bond is a simple majority vote. It's the, it's the bond part of the bond that we would have to borrow money against. Um, and that requires a higher threshold of votes. Right. It's a supermajority. And, uh, but if we take care of those things that we're responsible to take care of, like schools, I mean, here's the reality. People voted to pass those bond measures in their school districts. So that tells you that it was a priority. Uh, I think we need to honor that priority of the people. And so um, as we move forward, I think that if we take the cash portion and we put that towards school construction, then that is a, you know, that's a good thing for us to do and an important thing for us to do, totally support that. The rest of the projects uh, can wait until we have a hearse that works. So the projects require bonding and- Correct. So so you think the, you, you anticipate that that part will not be voted on of the capital budget until I there's a hearse decision that's been- Right, I don't see where we get 60% of the votes. I don't, I don't see that happening because uh, that's how egregious Hearst is. And water is a, is a huge, huge issue for us as a legislature to be dealing with. Um, and it would be great if we could get out in front of the issue with uh, stormwater as well. I mean, 
every year when it rains really hard, we sort of hold our breath to see if I-5 is going to be shut down at Centralia. We've got to do something about that. But it's going to take some courage on behalf of the leaders who represent that area to make sure we get it done. So we've got lots of big ticket items to think about, uh, but water is boy, at, at the very top of the list. In this upcoming session, what other legislation do you expect to get passed or considered? Well, I think we're going to see a lot of social legislation. When the Majority Coalition Caucus formed, we made a very intentional decision to be focused on financial issues, issues of jobs, the economy, uh, world-class education, instead of social issues. I think- So we say social issues, what, what, what's an example of that? What are we talking um, about? I think that you'll see, uh, you'll see um, um, the Reproductive Parity Act, um, the, which is, you know, um, if a hospital performs um, live births, then they have to perform abortion. Uh, I think that you'll see... Um, uh, what about the Voting Rights Act might come up? Oh, I'm sure that will come up. Uh, and the good news on that is that Senator Melosha has been working for the MCC um, to help drive a solution that's truly a solution and, and doesn't have a pendulum effect of totally swinging things in the opposite direction. We need to land right in the middle. He's been working on that. So I'm sure we'll see that come up. Um, and then... Um, oh, I'm sure that we're going to, I'm sure that gun issues will be brought up, but um, I'm not sure that the political will exists in the House to actually move anything out. I myself am going to have a bill um, that changes the discussion from punishing lawful gun owners to punishing criminals who choose to use guns in a bad way, right? I mean, I think that we've got to change the discussion and also mental health. Um, we, uh, I took part in the bill that, um, that uh, addressed mental health issues and gun rights and that kind of thing so that somebody who's displaying or um, who's, who's uh, showing um, suicidal ideation that uh, a gun they can they can have an interview and see if they're really at risk of harming themselves, whether they should have a gun at their disposal, that kind of thing. So I think that we we're all caught up about um, we get all caught up about these mass shootings and rightfully so because they are a stake through our collective heart. Um, but so many of the pieces of legislation that are being presented wouldn't have prevented any of those acts. And so, um, you know, those are some of the discussions we'll be having. But I think that people who use guns in a criminal way need to be treated like criminals. And we can't just slap them on the hands and let them go because we know that they'll do the same thing. So what other legislation will you introduce this session? So I've got some, some, it's a short session. And so that means I literally have about a three-week window to get my initiatives through. And that's very tight. Um, but I am going to be working, uh, our oldest political subdivision in the state are our diking and drainage districts. Uh, very important for us here in southwestern Washington. And uh, we are running out of people to take on the responsibility of those elected offices because they have become very onerous in terms of the auditing and paper reporting. Um, it's it's kind of a silly little thing, but, but it's a really important little thing. So I'm going to have some legislation about that. I had it last year. It got to the House and then died in the House. Then the next one is, um, again, brought to me by a constituent who uh, wanted to do something with uh, county road vacation under a very uh, specific set of circumstances. So we were able to work with the county and the landowner to come up with something that could work, and so I'll be pushing that as well. Um, I think when you do the stakeholder work on the front end, it makes passage on the back end a lot easier. So those are two of the things. I also have something, I don't know if you got to see the, um, the recent newspaper coverage about the 
state parks funding where the work group said we just need to scrap the discover pass and just slap tab fees on every car in the state to help pay for state parks and i'm more of a user's fee kind of person that user's fees are a bedrock conservative value don't use it don't pay for it but people need to have a choice so i uh i based on something that um, i did last year where i introduced the resolution or the bill to make uh, Bigfoot the official state cryptid, um, uh, someone who I trust and respect very much said, you know, you really need to do a Bigfoot license plate. Oh, so that'll be... So I'm going to introduce party. that and then have all the funding go to um, go to state parks. So whoever... I know that we'll have three at my house because my house is a big Bigfoot house. Um, but I... Uh, I think it's a good way to supplement some of the income. And you know what? We have no idea how much money that will bring in. But what we do know is that state parks are operating on a shoestring right now. And it's something that we need to be mindful of. Uh, but it's it's going to be better to um, have, I believe it's going to be better to have vol people voluntary, voluntarily help rather than foister something on them that they you know, have no interest in participating in. What kind of leverage does does the Republican Party have in the Senate? Well, the reality is, and it was this way when we were in the majority, we drove policy that would have long-term implications while we were in the majority. Many of these things are paying dividends. So it will be interesting for me to see how many of the things that we did now that we've seen that they're working, um, would be repealed or undone. But the reality is we arrived at those things because we reached out across the aisle. So, and we did that for two reasons. First of all, we all know that any time one side sort of rams it in and breaks it off, it's never going to be a good outcome for the majority of the people. I believe that because the numbers are still so close, we all still work together. We all still are in close proximity with one another. And, and I believe that that, that will continue um, except for the idea of the social issues um, where we said, look, we're going to focus on the checkbooks of the people of this state. We're going to get them where they need to be. We're going to make sure they're, we're spending their dollars wisely. For the most part, I'm, I am hopeful that the value of what we have done over the past five years will stand the test of time and, and we will have been able to institutionalize some of those things like the four-year budget outlook, for example. So we're not just budgeting year to year. We're saying, how is this item going to impact our budget over the next four years? I'm hoping that that stands the test of time. The governor's supplemental budget uh, calls for a carbon tax. Is there any appetite for that at all in, in your party? Well, I can't. Sp I can only speak for myself and some Fair of enough. the comments that I've heard. Uh, we, as a caucus, fought back the low carbon fuel standard, which, as you might recall from the governor's clue work group, was ninety eight cents to a dollar sixty eight per gallon of gas. Um, the carbon tax, uh, I believe, represents a very, not as high of a dollar threat, but still represents about 25 cents per gallon of gas on everyone who drives a, a regular, either hybrid or regular gas engine vehicle. It also imposes a tax on the highest polluters like UW and Wazoo. So at a time when we're struggling to keep college costs low, we're talking about giving, uh, raising a tax on them that uh, on on carbon, which is... Uh, so you wouldn't be in favor of it? I would not. I guess that should be the short answer. No, I wouldn't be in favor of it for a whole host of reasons. It would be government picking and choosing, you know, oh, we'll cut out UW and Wazoo. Oh, we'll cut out the pulp and paper mills. Oh, we'll cut these people out. And so then you have a more concentrated tax on a smaller group of people. So to me, 
I just don't think that that's the business that government should be in. And um, and so we'll see what happens. But I I just don't see a circumstance. Uh, I think we I think we have to have a lot of discussions about it. Um, I I'm leaning away from supporting anything like that because I just see it as another hamper on the economy. So I guess the last thing I want to ask you about was there was that letter that was sent um, sent uh, regarding sexual harassment was signed by nearly mm -hmm. every uh, female member of the legislature mm -hmm. as well as some lobbyists. What kind of follow up work has been done on that letter? So we just had our first task force meeting yesterday. I took the issue to the FNO committee, which is the committee that oversees operations of the Senate. And so I, I uh, made my plea to them. They saw value in, in my suggestions and also uh, in having a task force to look at our workforce policies and to see how we're implementing things. Um, I think that, um, you know, part of our problem is in the lobbying community, which we truly can't control. We can't control interpersonal relationships outside of the Capitol, but we can say um, we want people educated on our policies. We want them to sign off that they will adhere to our policies. And I'm pushing for the, the uh, rule that if they don't sign off on them, then they won't be permitted to lobby on our campus. So, um, I think that people want to be good actors and and uh, and part of it is knowing what's okay and what's not okay. When, when these issues get brought up in the legislature, it's often mentioned that a lot of business in the legislature is based on relationships mm -hmm. as well as power. Uh, and so that that's not really it doesn't seem really conducive to dealing with sexual harassment or har harassment like that. Does there need to be a stronger, say, HR component or, or some sort of independent uh, administrative entity in the legislature that could deal with these complaints? Or right, we're looking at that right now, and that was part of the discussion yesterday. Another part, Jake, is empowerment to change the discussion from me too to not me. Um, Senator Linda Wilson gets the credit for that. Uh, she said that at a meeting that we were at, were at several weeks ago. And I have to tell you, I think it's brilliant. I think somehow we have to empower not just women, Jake, but there we've had some issues with men uh, being on the receiving end as well. Um, so I think that we have to, to uh, create an environment where People can say, I know you didn't just mean to make me feel this way, did you? You know what I mean? We're, we right. have to empower people to be able to stand up for themselves. It's a scary thing to do because of the power, the way the distribution of power occurs and, and the idea that uh, legislators are protected. But here's something that I will not, I, I think is absolutely unacceptable to hide a bad thing that someone has done so that they can go on and go into an environment where they are in the same power curve or power structure over vulnerable young women, say, at a college. We, that is a culture that is wholly unacceptable. Um, so I think this idea of protecting elected officials and and sh and sheltering their misdeeds, um, whether you you know whether you buy their excuses or not, is you're we can't be the we can't be passing priest from parish to parish. Sexual harassment complaints or even complaints made against legislators or lobbyists? Should that be a matter of public record? Should those be subject to public disclosure? Well, they currently, it's up to the person who's filing the complaint. Most, what we're finding after meeting with staff yesterday, and I'm talking about the staff who are in office positions who um, tend to be our most vulnerable individuals, they, part of the reason they don't want to file complaints is they don't want the media or anyone else to know. They just want to know it's being handled. So we have to, these are all the things that we are looking at. Um, so I don't know how that's all going to shake out, but 
I believe that the Senate releases this, the higher profile stuff. I mean, all my stuff with Don Benton was released to the media. Um, I think that uh, it depends on the victim and what they want. Onward, upward. And that's our podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find the podcast just about anywhere you find podcasts. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. We post it straight to the Comedians website the first Thursday of each month. So you can find it basically everywhere. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you later.